Welcome back to Hotel Bar Sessions, episode 11. Today's topic, privacy. Welcome back, everybody, to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down as if they had just met up at the hotel bar after a long day of philosophy conference papers. My name is Lee Johnson. I'm joined by my co-hosts, Shannon Musset. Hey, everyone. And Amin Allred. Hi, guys. And as we normally do, I want to go ahead and get your drink orders and the paper session that you just came out of. So, Shannon, what about you? I think I'll have a white wine spritzer. Thank you very much. And I just got out of a session called, I have three questions and a point of clarification, and I'll try to be brief on the art of attending conferences. (laughs) (laughs) Oof. Oof. I feel seen. (laughs) (laughs) Try to be brief. What about you, Evan? I am going to have the second most expensive red wine on the menu. It's going to bankrupt me, I know. That you can get by the glasses, so we're not going to be too terrible. And that's because I came out of a really great and timely session called A Snowball's Chance in Hell. It snowed on April 20th, 2021 in the Midwest. (laughs) That was the paper? (laughs) That was the paper, and it was about the possibility of transformative justice. (laughs) I'm so confused. Don't worry. (laughs) So I'm also going to have my usual Fireball and Diet Coke. I just got out of a paper that was called When Occam's Razor Dulls. Philosophy's five o'clock shadow. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I love it. <laughs> All right, so today our topic is privacy. We want to talk about whether or not the idea of privacy is dead. If in this move towards putting all of our lives out there on the interwebs, we've just more or less given up on having any kind of privacy anymore, or if not, what there is to be done to preserve whatever kind of privacy we find valuable. So I want to just start off by asking the both of you the general question first, which is, do you think that privacy is dead? I mean, I feel like a bit of a novice with this question because I sort of assume that we have privacy and it's just a question of protecting it. So I would say I think there's a lot of encroachment on it, but I don't think it's dead. I think I'm probably somewhere close to where Shannon is. I think that privacy is in mortal threat. And I think that whether or not it's dead depends a lot on decisions we make over the next 10 years or so. What about Um, you, Lee? Well, I think that it probably is dead. I'm not sure that is an entirely terrible thing, although I think at the moment it is a very bad thing. So again, just so we're all on the same page, what do you mean by privacy? Like describe to me something that is private in your life. Well, I'll I'll well. happily go first. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, but seriously, so for me, the model of privacy, and I understand the problems with this, and I hope we can talk about that later. But for me, the model of privacy is my bedroom, like the actual physical space of my bedroom where I close doors, and people have to have permission to come into it. And I keep things there and do things there that I don't really want a lot of people involved with. So you do not carry your smartphone into your bedroom at night. Well, I mean, it's got the best sound machine app on it. So I have to bring my smartphone. <laughs> and that, and in, it's, it it's, records all the data for her, too. It's not, it's not recording me yet. It can't do that yet. Well, <laughs> uh, <laughs> might have some bad news for you there, Shan. <laughs> what about you, Eamon? So, I mean, I, I think that, I think, and this is probably something that we, we're going to need to talk about. I think that probably we mean at least two related, but not necessarily identical things by privacy. One having to do with, let's just say, the bedroom stuff. Or more broadly, I think, let's say, forms of privacy that relate very heavily to our bodies, the other of which has to do with information and data. And I, and I don't just mean uh, digital information and data. I mean information and data in lots of our social lives. And it seems to me like we mean both those things by privacy. They're probably connected, but I don't know that we've always thematized exactly how. 
So I know I've mentioned this to you both before, but there's this quote by Gabriel Garcia Marquez where he says that all human beings have three lives, the public, the private, and the secret. And I think that what you all are describing are, in my view, the secret parts of our lives, the parts of our lives that we choose to share or not share with other people or, you know, with limited numbers of other people. And that when I think about privacy, I'm not sure that there's any social dimension to that at all, that what is private is only my relation to myself. So, you know, perhaps the only really private thing that I have are the thoughts inside my own head. In almost every other way, I'm interacting with others. And so part of that sociality is deciding to share certain things or refuse to share certain things. And that seems to me more like what we're talking about when we're talking about secrecy. I I guess I don't really understand why you wouldn't want to call it privacy when we're talking about the things that we choose to share with people. That doesn't seem to me to be problematic. Like, why would something like calling it a secret somehow capture it? better than saying that it's like, actually, this is my private sphere. This is the the world that I lay out as my private world. And I allow people to come in and out of it. Because the moment that people come in and out of it, it's not private. It's secret. But uh, but mm. I, I think that it's important to make a distinction. I'm still not 100% sure about the way you're making it. And I'm hoping we can get some clarity on that. I do. I love the Gabriel Garcia Marquez quote, though. Although I can now promise you that for the rest of the day, I will also have Leonard Cohen's My Secret Life bus <laughs> playing in the back. Of the <laughs> I thought you cry. already had that anyway, Emma. Well, I thought that was yeah. just like, a, that was a variety just of Cohen music. songs going through the back. Right. It's on, it's on like, a mix. Yeah, but I, I hope we can sort of clarify why you think it's important to call that secret rather than private. Because if we're describing the same thing, we're just using different words. Okay, that's fine. Let's just make sure we're using the same terminology. But I'm not 100% clear how you're making the distinction between the secret and the private here. The, the reason that it's important for me, and I know this will come as no surprise, but when I think about privacy threats to privacy or what should be done about privacy. I'm really thinking about primarily information privacy. That's the most important to me. I think the important thing philosophically about making this distinction between the secret and the private is exactly what I just said to Shannon before, which is that secrecy denotes the sociality of that information, like whatever it is that we're calling private. That in fact, it's not something that is just absolutely private, you know, sort of between me and no one else, but that it already is something that I consider a part of my interactions with others, my social interactions with others. And there are certain rules that I want to keep about who has access to it and who doesn't. Secrecy seems a much better way to talk about what a lot of people are talking about when they talk about privacy. Can I, can I jump in here? Because as I'm listening to you say this, I'm thinking to myself, Okay, I like it. I like the philosophical move of saying secrecy actually captures the sociality of the sharing or refusing to share of information better than privacy. But and then it's just sort of making me wonder, should we just get rid of the term privacy altogether? Because if the idea is the only thing that we have that is private are the thoughts in our own head. And I might argue, well, even those aren't really completely closed off and isolated within your own head. It seems to me like what you're advocating for is just getting rid of the term privacy altogether. I do want to get rid of the term privacy altogether. I mean, I, I think that it's it's on its way out anyway, and it's hanging on by fingernails. But uh, only, beca- only because we conflate privacy as a kind of philosophical idea with the capitalist notion of private property okay. as something that I own. That, to me, this helps me understand what you're getting at, although I still want to make sure that we, we clarify it. Because I, if, you, if what you're saying to me is, look, there are different ways of conceptualizing what gets called privacy but might actually refer to different sorts of things. And one of the ways that we often do that is through the notion of property rights and that what you want to get rid of is property rights in that sense or to use those to enforce what we normally call privacy rights. I'm probably on board with that. I mean, I think we still have to clarify what we mean, but that to me seems something different than saying it's just a question of how we share information. So the kind of bedroom stuff that Shannon was talking about or what I'm talking about is the body 
it it doesn't seem to me obvious that that just reduces to questions about information. And Mm -hmm. it seems to me like even if the liberal capitalist model that we've often used to enforce those kinds of rights is maybe problematic and worth rethinking, I worry that if we're only hanging by a thread anyway, that if we simply vacate that notion that we're... I I think that there's still a lot of political value in holding on to the hard-won rights that we've won for bodies. I mean, just for example, privacy laws are a thing. And so I guess why not change what we mean by privacy to be more what you mean by secrecy rather than just sort of saying privacy is on its way out, we need to get rid of it when laws have been created to preserve certain aspects of privacy. Yeah, I completely agree with what you just said. I think what I would like to see done is those laws written more with an understanding of privacy as something like secrecy and not privacy. Because I think a lot of those laws are not really progressive in the way that they promise to be. They're actually quite conservative and they're quite retrogressive in many ways. I mean, here's the thing. Privacy laws, if we're just talking about information, and again, I think Ammon's right that we do want to get back to talking about other sort of notions of privacy. But privacy laws are written in such a way as to really make us or at least make us believe that we have some control over who knows our secrets. I mean, that's really what people are worried about. People are not worried about privacy laws so that they can sit alone in their room, think you know, think their private thoughts or have this information, but that so that people who I don't want to share those secrets with don't have access to those secrets. And that seems to me would be quite helpful moving forward to think about privacy in that way. I think also, just back to the body, you know, the same thing, not to think about our bodies as our private property. And so privacy laws are about who can touch something that is mine, that I own, but rather that there's a kind of meaningful relationship that I have with my body and with people who touch it or interact with it. And the relationship that I have with people who I trust to touch and interact with my body is a lot closer to secrecy than it is to privacy. You know, I read a really interesting article by Bob Gelman talking about this. We do tend to think about our information as our private information that should belong to us and not as information that is social. And he gives the example of the wrongheadedness of that in looking at the medical establishment. Because if if I have something that my doctor knows about my body, well, it's not just information about my body that belongs to me because now it belongs to the doctor and the pharmacist and, you know, whatever other auxiliary people are going to be involved in that if I have to go to the hospital, if I have to have following treatments, right? So in a certain sense, it's actually counterproductive to treat something like the data about even your own body and its health and illness as something that belongs solely to you. I think that's such a good point. And it's actually a really good example to use because in that sense, whatever information that you and your doctor secretly share about your body is neither information that you could have had without your doctor right? or your doctor could have had without you or either of you could have understood without a whole social world of shared information that we call medical knowledge. And so in that sense, there is already this sort of sociality to what we're calling, you know, in medical ethics, it's called patient private information. That already is socialized. The question is not who owns the private property rights to it. The question is, who is allowed into limited secret conversations about it and who isn't? So, and in what ways? Okay, that, I mean, that's helpful. I mean, but if that's correct, which I'm really sympathetic to, it sounds like a lot of times what we talk about as the problem of privacy is, in fact, the problem of the public. And I don't mean that in a paradoxical way. I mean that in a pretty straightforward way. Like, what you're saying is that, like, all information is potentially public. And my body is my embodiment in the world is how I relate to a public. But the problem is, is that we want to make sure that we have autonomy in the kind of public spaces we inhabit. You know, I'm sympathetic to that idea, but what I guess I'm curious if privacy rights have been won, whatever, whatever term we want to use for them, if they've been won in order to try to give us some of that autonomy. And if the challenge is not to the private, but to the public, 
how do we fight for those spaces that we've that we have one if shannon's worried that they're in danger and this is where i think our again our attachment to the language of privacy is not helping us because ultimately what privacy laws are trying to do is create new rules for the social space right create new rules for how people interact what they share and don't share, what is already assumed about their consent or refusal to share in certain ways with certain agents or corporate agents in the social space. I think that that's actually what we need. We need a different way of understanding how this new information sociality that we're constantly in, either because of the information that we're, we are putting out there or because of the lives that we can only live by sharing our information or just because of the massive surveillance infrastructure that is our IRL meat space lives. That's what needs to be rebuilt. And I'm not sure that putting privacy forward is going to get us actually what we want. <laughs> So this actually makes me think that I want clarification. And so, again, since I'm a bit of a technophobe and an old school Gen Xer, I really tend to, probably wrongly, draw a hard and fast distinction. I wouldn't say hard and fast, but to draw a pretty strong distinction between what you all insist on calling my meat space self, but so I'll just have to like go along with that, even though it sounds so gross, but I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll be like Lady Gaga in my meat dress in the meat space. Um, but right. The, and then questions of privacy about that Shannon and mm. then the digital Shannon that's doing social media and purchasing things off of websites and sending emails and doing group ch texts and things like that. I, I tend to think of these not as unrelated, but as somewhat distinct. And I'm getting the sense of the way we're talking about privacy, there's kind of this blending between the two. And so I would really love some clarity about whether Lee, especially you, think that these are as distinct as I might be saying? And if they're not, what are the implications of that? I don't think that the digital you and the meat the material you are as You can different. say meat space, it's fine. <laughs> okay, thank everybody you, everybody else does. I just have to deal with it. <laughs> I don't think that the digital you and the meat space you are as distinct as you just described. I do think that they are distinct. I, I give this kind of thought experiment to my students every semester. I say, imagine that the digital you just disappeared tomorrow for whatever reason. You know, your banking records, your search histories, your social media platforms, your medical records, student records, everything about you that has been encoded in digital information just disappears tomorrow. It would be practically impossible for the meat space you to function in the world. You wouldn't even be able to prove who you are. Now, if the meat space you drop dead tomorrow, the digital you could live on for <laughs> quite a long time, you know, perhaps even forever. Some other meat space person could take it up and it could be put into an AI program that could keep that digital Shannon alive. I mean, the self is always multiple, right? I contain multitudes. <laughs> yes, you but, do. <laughs> Lee, do, you, but that, do you have doppelgangers of us ready to go? Is this what you're trying to tell us? <laughs> there's right little now? cookies <laughs> and they're really cute. They look like the Ashley 2 doll or whatever. It's yeah. <laughs> Yes, yes. Big announcement at the end of this season is that, is that I'm replacing these two Meet Space co-hosts with a new and improved digital co-host. Uh, no. But this I, is I making do. me nervous. <laughs> it but, should. But, yeah. If I could, my point is, is that I think that we have a tendency, or at least a lot of people in our generation have a tendency. I think this is probably less true of the Zoomers, but even millennials, I think, have a tendency to think of their meat space selves as their real selves and the digital selves as copies or shadows or some lesser version of the self and that the meat space self is interested in controlling the developments of the digital self. I think that that is a gross misunderstanding, that the truth is, is that most of the people that you interact with on a day-to-day -day basis are interacting with the digital you and not the meat space you. Your employers, your banks, 
all of the social media platforms, your wherever you get your groceries, your doctors. I mean, they know you primarily as this digital archive. And so I think that we really do have to think about our digital selves as being an existential project of care and cultivation that we have to put as forward as the care and cultivation of our meat space selves. I mean, you should be thinking about maintaining your digital identity with the same kind of care that you do when you take your vitamins every morning or you hydrate or whatever. That makes a lot of sense, right? I totally appreciate that our digital selves matter and that they have to be cared for. I do worry, though, especially when we're talking about whether we want to call it privacy or secrecy, and maybe this is that I am too much of a Leonard Cohen fan, like I do feel like so much of what I would call my secret life is about my meat space self and my digital self. Yeah. Like one of the reasons why those pieces of data are interacted with by like my bank and my employer, et cetera, et cetera, is that those are exactly who I don't allow into my secret life. Right. So it seems to me like even caring for my digital self might be because I'm worried about threats to the privacy of my meat space self who, even if my digital self could go on, I happen to be attached, and we might disagree here, right? But I happen to be attached to the Ammon 1.0 who is aging and sort of falling apart, but that's okay, you know? So first of all, Lee, I love what you said about the care and cultivation of the... I think that's exactly right. And honestly, I don't think about my digital self in those terms. I think of it as like bureaucratic nonsense that I have to go through. I think of it as tools I have to use in order to facilitate aspects of my life that I enjoy in the meat space. But I don't ever think of it as something that is me that needs to have serious care and cultivation put towards it. So I really like that. And again, sort of building off of what Ammon just said, part of what I worry about with this sort of like they're at least on the same kind of level and have to be tended to and cared to in the same way is that I feel so much less control over my digital self. I mean, like, yes, I click on terms and agreements and I say yes, because I obviously have to in order to use Spotify or whatever. And I don't read it, but just for the sake of efficiency, you just click it and and get it. And I feel like I don't know where that information's going. I don't know who's seeing that information. I don't know how who it's being sold to and how I'm being fed certain advertisements and products in return. Whereas I do feel like in my material flesh and bone self that I have more control over which doors are open and which doors are closed, over who comes into the house, over where I drive my car. And and no, it's not like this total illusion of a private world, but it definitely feels like I have a lot more control over that space and the privacy or secrecy of that space than I do in the digital Shannon. That is absolutely true, that you do have considerably less control over your digital self's secret life than you do your meat space self's secret life. And now that I've kind of slowly drawn y'all in <laughs> to, to my, to the like, the at, least secret lean, layer. at least leaning towards the emphasis that I want to put on secrecy instead of privacy, let me go ahead and unleash the second of my points, which is that another good reason to get rid of, not get rid of privacy, but to get rid of the emphasis on privacy is that really what we need is not more privacy on the part of individuals. What we need is more transparency on the part of the massive corporations and data brokers and systems, medical systems, educational systems, tax systems, et cetera, financial systems that are controlling all of this information and are deciding what's secret and what's not secret. Not you, not me. The problem is that the more that we talk about privacy, the less we talk about transparency because implied in the emphasis on privacy is that transparency is suspicious. And I think that if we want to not be against our wills, totally transparent to corporate interests or data brokers, etc., then what we need to insist on is that they be totally transparent to us. I'm okay. I'm still hesitating here because I'm not 
100% clear on the way in which privacy and transparency always exactly are opposed in the way you're describing. Like, I can see them as two sides of a certain coin, but it might be like you pointed out that one issue is that corporations are the ones oftentimes who control what is and isn't transparent, what is and isn't private. So it seems to me like I could say, yeah, the problem is that corporations aren't transparent enough. Corporations have too much privacy, but the problem isn't with my transparency. So the point is like, I want to take privacy back from corporations, but I don't see why that means that I'm necessarily embracing total transparency. That doesn't seem to follow for me. No, I think that's a good point. I don't think that we're actually saying different things here. Really what I'm asking for is a sort of shift in rhetorical force, because I agree with you. What we want is our privacy back or what it is that we call privacy. But the more I insist on my privacy, I'm only going to incrementally make progress. I'm going to say, okay, you can't look at my personal medical information. You can't look at my grades in a classroom or whatever. When the much more effective way to do that would not be to keep focusing on my privacy, but to focus on the transparency of, as we said, corporations and data brokers and state actors and non-state actors. So again, this is a strategic rhetorical argument, you know, an argument about the strategic rhetoric. So this makes me think of an article that you shared with me a while back, the Personal Panopticons article, which I think is really good. And I think it gets to what you're talking about here. And that the problem with privacy is the emphasis on the individual over the social. And I'll just I'll just really quickly read a quote because I think it captures exactly what you're getting at with this discussion of transparency. So L.M. Sakasis argues in this article, Personal Panopticons, that older conceptions of privacy, which construe privacy as a merely individual concern, may misread the threat pervasive surveillance poses, leading to a paradox in which a deeper concern for privacy produces only more despair or indifference about it. For example, when weighing the risks of invasive data gathering, privacy pragmatists may conclude that they have nothing to hide or that the capture of their anonymized consumer data poses no particular risk to them. They may be right on both counts, but they are missing the collective privacy risks presented by a networked society. Amen and hallelujah to that. Thank you, L.M. (laughs) Sarkasis. Yeah. But I guess another side to this is, you know, Ian Bogus calls this, we're in an age of privacy nihilism. And I wonder if it's just sort of like by getting rid of even an individual concern for privacy that we're just kind of giving up, (laughs) you know, just sort of like, well, there's nothing we can do. We have to only focus on the social. We have to focus on corporations and state agents because they're the ones that have the most power. So we just have to try to take a global rather than an individual perspective. And I do worry that that, because when you think of it solely on the social level, it sometimes feels so enormous and impossible to fight against that, that you then come back to the individual level and just want to hold on to that. So would you see that as a kind of uh, privacy nihilism in any way? Yeah, I mean, I think that's really problematic. I think those exact same hesitations and motivations are what is preventing class consciousness, you know, and preventing the sort of move to a more socialized understanding of a lot of things in our life. I do also think that we are historically in a really unique moment. Information technologies have progressed so quickly in the last 20 years, and our laws, as we all know, have not kept kept up with them. And we're trying to make laws to fix problems from 10 years ago as the problems of the next five years are already adjusting to those laws. So I was wondering if we could just take one second to hear from the man himself, Mark Zuckerberg. The Zuck. So we have made a lot of mistakes in running the company. I think it's it's pretty much impossible, I, I believe, to start a company in your dorm room and then grow it to be at the scale that we're at now without um, making some mistakes. And because our service is about... Um, helping people connect and information. Um, those mistakes have been different in, in how they, uh, we try not to make the same mistake multiple times, but in general, a lot of the mistakes are around um, how people connect to each other just because of the nature of the service. Overall, I would say that we're going through a broader philosophical shift in how we approach our responsibility as a company. For the first 10 or 12 years of the company, 
I viewed our responsibility as primarily building tools that if we could put those tools in people's hands, then that would empower people to do good things. What I think we've learned now across a number of issues, not just data privacy, but also fake news and foreign interference in elections, is that we need to take a more proactive role and a broader view of our responsibility. It's not enough to just build tools. We need to make sure that they're used for good. And that means that we need to now take a more active view in policing the ecosystem um, and in watching and kind of looking out and, and making sure that all of the members in our community are using these tools in a way that's gonna be good and healthy. So um, at the end of the day, this is gonna be something where people will measure us by our results uh, on this. Um, it's not that I expect that anything I say here today to, to necessarily change people's view, uh, but I'm committed to getting this right. And I believe that over the coming years, once we fully work all these solutions through, um, people will see real, real differences. So, Lee, we might disagree about Elon Musk, but we can hate that douche together, right? Oh, God. <laughs> Barf. Talk about a robot. <laughs> that guy's like a Roomba with hair. I got okay, so. <laughs> I mean, that one got me. <laughs> so, it's funny, right? There's this weird way in which our friend Mark here positions the growth of his company as the growth from the private to the public. You know, he start, mm -hmm. he tells us this origin mythology of him starting himself in, in the bedroom of his dorm room, not mentioning, by the way, what he was doing when he was starting his company right. in, the, in, his, in the bedroom of his dorm room, which I would rather he kept private, to be perfectly honest, um, <laughs> instead of having inflicted on all of us. But to now to being this company that suddenly is going to start to exercise good, and the thing that I'm screaming at is like, I actually think he probably does think his company is exercising good. My problem mm -hmm. is that I've got a serious disagreement about what the public good is from our friend, Mr. Zuckerberg. And this gets back to the, the quote that Shannon was bringing up by uh, Ian Bogost. As much as we're privacy nihilists, I think that there's also a social and public nihilist. Mm -hmm. The thing that I'm really worried about is that we are seeding what the good is yeah. and what our society should look like to corporations and to government. And to me, part of privacy is, is finding ways to retain our power to fight that and to push for our notion of the good. It's so hard because I'm sitting here thinking, well, look, these things are free. I can just go use Facebook. I can use Twitter. I can use Gmail. I can use Messenger. And all of these things are basically free. And so I feel like I am playing into this seeding of the good to corporations like Facebook when I'm really just sort of using their free stuff and they're making all the decisions about how that interaction is even happening in the first place. Hey listeners, we really do love to hear from you. So feel free to send us an audio clip with a comment or a question to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. Also check out the interactive page on our website, hotelbarpodcast.com, where we often post questions or solicit comments about future topic episodes. You may hear yourself on a future episode. this exercise that I do with my students in my technology and human values class where we spend a whole class period looking at the terms and conditions or the terms of service of various different platforms. And I'll put this in the link to this episode, but you know, some of those, it would take the average American something like 10 days to sit down and actually read all the way through all of the TOCs and the TOSs of the apps and services and platforms that the average American uses. And of course, that's not even to mention the difficulty level of reading many of those documents. So I, I mean, you're right, Shannon. So that I really that really bothers me. Because this whole idea that you, Shannon, you're participating in this, you're using the free stuff, you clicked, I accept these terms in order to use these things. But it's so deceptive, because nobody reads them. And nobody reads them because they're too long. Nobody has time for that. And really, the language is so highly specialized 
that only a particular kind of training actually gives you access into that. So in a sense, it's like I'm assuming that you're going to protect my information, that you're not going to use it against me, that I'm not going to have something happen beyond my wildest imagination, but I'm basically giving you this information to do it. I'm giving Zuckerberg this information to do it, and he's the one that is, is, is trying so hard to make it better and not make the same mistakes, but I don't believe that he's not. Yeah, trust him. Yeah, I don't think I don't necessarily believe that he's not either. And I agree with you about the difficulty of the average person reading and understanding the terms and conditions or the terms of service. However, I want to disagree with you with this claim that a lot of people make, which is that we all know no one reads them. And so therefore the fault is someone else's. That reminds me a lot of when students don't read the syllabus, right? <laughs> and you know, you're like, but it, it was there. The fact that you don't read it, that's partially your fault, right? That you don't read it. Now, I think that you're right that a lot of these, even if you did read it, you might not understand it. Although chances are the three of us, people with advanced degrees, could understand the terms and conditions if you actually read them. So we can't use that excuse of, well, I just didn't read it. If you wrote your syllabus the way that these terms of service are written, (laughs) you would be doing a bad thing. I would say that your students had a right to complain about their final grade. It's a bad contract. Yeah. I agree with you. And I think that's back to the point about how it is it written in a way that the people who it is written for could understand it. You know, I mean, in medical ethics, they have this concept of informed consent. It's not just that I tell you something. It's that I also tell it to you in a way that you can understand. And that's not how these terms and conditions are written. However, I do think, though, that what's different from the syllabus here is that if I wrote a 45 page syllabus and let's be honest, syllabuses are getting longer and harder to read, harder for normal students to understand. But if I were to write a syllabus that was demonstrably opaque to the average undergraduate, I think that somebody should complain about it, right? And and there are mechanisms by which, you know, at the department level or at the level of my school or college, that somebody would come in and say, you've got to rewrite this. I think the problem here is that we're not availing ourselves of the mechanisms that we could be using to force them to rewrite those terms and conditions. I do think that Europe is ahead of us on this. So about four years ago, Europe passed the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation. There are 99 articles in it, and they span everything from cookies to what kinds of information can be collected to the so-called right to be forgotten, which tries to embed this understanding of data privacy as a kind of human right. But one of the things that it has been somewhat effective in doing is forcing some of the changes to the way that terms and services documents are written. Another tough thing, in addition to this issue of disclosure, is the question of the freedom of the contract. Now, I know that these companies say, you know, we're private companies, we're just providing service, you don't have to avail yourself of our service. But if what you're saying about digital space is correct, and I think it is, if it's true that my digital self restricts my meat space self, at a certain point, my willingness or unwillingness to sign these terms of service is my willingness to participate in public life. And that, again, seems to me like something that Mr. Zuckerberg is being intentionally disingenuous about here. Yeah, I totally agree. And I'm glad you brought it back to to Zuckerberg, because I think that that's correct. If I want to participate in the public sphere, I have to sign on somewhere. I have to agree to these terms, whether or not I don't like them. And so I guess I want to talk about how that information that we give over to people like Zuckerberg gets used. Because my understanding with something like the Cambridge Analytica scandal was that our information, our data, our preferences was being handed over to third parties who were then manipulating this data in order to sell us particular political ads promoting certain people or ideas without our knowledge that that was happening. And I mean, first of all, am I right about that? Is that what happened? 
Yeah, I do think it's important to note, and Mark Zuckerberg says this a lot, and he's right about this, that Facebook does not sell your data, that Facebook is a platform and that the app developers that operate on that platform. So every time you click on the what Harry Potter house am I quiz, you are giving information to the app developers of that quiz and you sign, you agree to give that information to them. And it turns out we now know in retrospect, you also agree to give not only your information, but the information of your friends, which is where maybe there's some culpability on the Facebook platform's part, but you give your information to them. Now, those platforms end up selling that data to large data brokers like Cambridge Analytica, who at one point Cambridge Analytica claimed to have had something like 1 million data points on every human being on the planet, which is, you know, I'm not sure, (laughs) you know, in retrospect, something that really is to brag about, but uh, it is, I mean, it was something to brag about. But yeah, they were able, of course, using super sophisticated AI systems with pattern recognition technology that exceeds the possibility of any human brain to realize that if they could target ads and in the 2016 it was political ads just at a very small number of people that are kind of in the middle that it doesn't take much to push people a little one way or the other so that was the whole of the Facebook Cambridge Analytica scandal and its relationship to the 2016 election. I'm leaving out, of course, all the parts about bots and the very famous Russian information service agency, but that's the basic story. But it is important to note that you're right. These platforms do not sell your data. However, they are the town hall now. They are the public life. And can you not use Facebook? Can you not use Twitter? Can you not use Google? Well, yeah, but, you know. Then you're cut off from the social sphere in a very dramatic way. And, And you can't take all of those ways that we connect out. I mean, if there's anything that we should have learned in the last year, it's that the internet should be a public utility and that there ought to be more government regulation of these massive platforms that have come to take the place of the public square. But surely knowing that I'm a Heffelpump. <laughs> Is that a thing? I don't think that's harm, a thing. I don't think it's a thing either. I, you guys, so the one massive pop culture phenomenon that I completely missed out on was Harry Potter. I never read the books. I never watched the movies. However, the very first year that I started teaching college, the students who were freshmen that year were, I guess, like the same age as Harry Potter. So they had grown up with Harry Potter and like everything about how they understood the world had to do with Harry (laughs) Potter. And so we were like, I was teaching the Iliad and they were trying to talk about Harry Potter. And I was like, oh my God, you know, I was teaching the Hebrew Bible. They want to talk about Harry Potter. (laughs) Okay. But like, let's say that they say like, which Beale Street juke joint are you quiz? That doesn't really help Cambridge Analytica out, does it? Oh, it totally does. Yeah. I mean, every little bit of information does. Because again, this is how the massive powers of AI-enabled pattern recognition work. All of these things that we think unimportant information, right? It's because we don't see the patterns, and right. we don't know how that information can be used. And actually, the people who you know run these neural network AI programs, even the people who design the AI networks don't understand still how those patterns work, right? Because it takes a mind much greater than ours to see it. Hey, everyone. We love to hear from you in the comments on our Hotel Bar Sessions Facebook page. And if you're on Twitter, you can follow the Hotel Bar Sessions podcast at Hotel Bar Podcast. You can also follow the HBS hosts on Twitter. I'm at Lovely Blueness. Ammon is at IdeasManPhD. And Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson. And don't forget to like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Let's bring this back then to the issue of privacy, because in listening to this, all this makes me think is how desperately we need to be not giving more room 
into these data collections or, you know, I, sound, I, sound, I totally sound like a grandma, right? Like, I sound like my dad. These data collections agencies that are taking this data and using... But seriously, I mean, it makes me feel like what we really need to be doing is saying, all right, we go here and no further. That's why I totally disagree. I think that that is not what we need to be doing. What we need to be doing is insisting on transparency. I know that you talked about this several episodes ago when we were in episode three, when we were talking about technology, that Kathy O'Neill actually started a company and she advocates for what are called algorithm audits. So this idea that the algorithms that are being used have to be transparent, which means that we have to understand what they're doing, how they work, what information is being gleaned from them. And the advantage of that is that now we don't have to worry about, okay, which of my secrets do I want to give away and which do I not want to give away? But I now understand whatever information they have, what they're doing with it and how it's working. So I'm not putting a lid on this amazing machine that can do amazing amounts of good, right? If you, if you think about like all the good it could do to have all this information, be able to recognize all these patterns, I mean, that's amazing. I, we don't want to put a lid on that. I think but, it's surveillance creep. Yeah, I, th- I, mean, I, I don't. I yeah. think I do want to put a lid on that, and I don't necessarily see this as having this huge potential for good. I have, I see it as having an ability to steer our thinking in certain ways, so that the future is being crafted by decisions that we've made in the past and in the present. Yeah, I mean, I think that one thing, like, I totally agree. Again, like, I agree that digital audits and transparency are good things. But one concern there is it doesn't give me, just the transparency doesn't give me the kind of control that we were talking about with secrecy. What I might learn from an audit is that everybody knows something about me that I have to live with now, like the time I threw up in the fifth grade. Now, the great thing is I'm not friends with anyone from fifth grade anymore. But if my fifth grade throw up experience is now part of and is now transparent, so everyone can now access this. It seems to me like the problem is that the fact that the that digital space is, to use things that I've talked with you elsewhere, ubiquitous and permanent in a way that other forms of public information or public spaces are not, creates new kinds of problems. And I just don't see how transparency on its own solves those. Like, I don't see how we get a, a right to forget or to be forgotten. I- I don't think that you're correctly describing the point I just made. My point was not that all of your information should be transparent. My point is, is that the algorithms that are being used by these platforms, by these, uh-huh. you know, massive data brokers, that those should be transparent. Because here's one thing. It's just like a fundamental law of surveillance mm-hmm. is that, you know, this is the logic of the panopticon is that simply knowing that one is surveilled, whether or not one is actually surveilled, changes one's behavior. The problem is, is that right now we're being surveilled and the surveillers are not being surveilled. If we instead stopped trying to, you know, yak about our, sorry, (laughs) yak yak on and on about, (laughs) about how much we want our own privacy. Stop surveilling me, stop surveilling me. And instead put the surveillers under surveillance, it wouldn't, you know, it's not happening overnight, but their behavior is going to change simply by the fact of being surveilled. But why can't it be both? But I mean, yeah, like I'm, again, I'm totally in favor of surveilling the surveillers, but I do think, and I, and I get your point about the algorithm, but once their knowledge is transparent, then unless we've restricted what they know, it's, it's, it is still surveillance creep in the way that Shannon's describing it. Yeah. What I'm saying is they might dial it back because they're scared. But like, I would rather also have the right to take ownership of what they can and can't surveil me on. I don't understand why I should give that up along with demanding more transparency and accountability from them. Well, maybe they're just doing it anyway. I don't think it's an either or. And I'm certainly not saying completely stop yakking about privacy. I mean, I'm glad that we got you privacy yakkers out there. I'm just (laughs) trying to say that there is another side to this. And I think that the only yakking about privacy is missing the point of the problem that's coming in the future. Yeah. It's just fixing the problem in the past. And that I suppose uh, yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's fair. I'm convinced. I mean, yeah, we I should mean, let really a thousand it. yaks bloom, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Yakers of the world, unite. You have nothing right. to lose but your yacker. <laughs> Hey, 
Hey, Hotel Bar Sessions listeners. Have you ever listened to one of our Hotel Bar Sessions and thought, wait a minute? Well, it turns out we do too. And so we actually have a YouTube channel that's called Hotel Bar Sessions in which once every five podcast episodes, we post a video of the three of us talking about our afterthoughts, things that occurred to us after we published our Hotel Bar Sessions podcast episodes. And we want to encourage you to check those out too. So go to YouTube, look up Hotel Bar Sessions podcast, and check out both our Hotel Bar Sessions podcast episodes and our Afterthoughts episodes. Now back to the conversation. So let me ask you guys a question. What do you think a world in which all of your information actually was transparent would look like? And then I want you to follow that with what would it look like in a world where all of your information was transparent, but so was all of the operations of the parties that we were talking about before, platforms, governments, data brokers, et cetera. I mean, as to your first question, I I think I would go to Brave New World. You know, this sort of idea that there is nothing private or secret is basically the premise of the book. And it's not exactly a terrible place because there's lots of great drugs and sex and stuff. But (laughs) it's also a place where you don't have real relationships, friendships and real love. And I think that's because there is not that kind of secret space. And so that would be my fear, is this sort of a world in which you can't really form bonds with people because there's nothing shared between you and them, and that's it. Now, I think I'm completely convinced with what you were arguing earlier that turning the surveillance back on the people and knowing everything about them is necessary if we actually have a world in which all of our data is just out there. And so that's, I just think, a necessary step, and you've got me completely convinced about that. Yeah, I'm convinced by the same the same thing. So I think we're all on board there and we're ready to storm for transparency of these big companies. I think that what I would most think was maybe actually a positive thing about a world without secrecy is that we might be in a world without shame. Yeah, Uh, I think that the most negative thing that there might see in a world without secrecy is that we might live in a world without shame. (laughs) Yeah, Um, I don't think I don't think we fully understand all the things that shame does both positively and negatively for us. and We should do a podcast on that. We should do one on shame. I would actually love to do that. Yeah, yeah that's a good you idea. You guys, that's on our list. It's like coming up in like, oh, sorry. <laughs> Full I transparency. Like, I was like, Full nobody reads my notes. <laughs> <laughs> we're just such great actors that you didn't even realize that we were joking around. Well, what about you, Lee? What do you think? So I actually was going to kind of answer in the similar format to Ammon. I would say that the good thing about a world where there are no secrets or no privacy is that there'd be no anonymity. But also the bad thing is that there'd be no yeah. anonymity. You know, we we play this game in my technology and human values class sometimes where I say, if you could rebuild the internet, what is one change that you would make? And I, I'm not a hundred percent committed to this, but very frequently, I think that the one change that I would make is that no one would be able to participate on the internet anonymously. Mm. Yeah, I mean, in the internet, that might be necessary. But I love anonymity so much. But I think this gets back to what we mean by the public and norm. I think that in real life, I miss traveling in big cities that I don't know anyone in, because I love that experience of anonymity. But at the same time, like I feel beholden to the people around me, I feel a responsibility. And I don't think I behave like an asshole in these contexts. But I love having experiences and having conversations that can have this weird intimacy And I don't mean that in like a gross bedroom way. I just mean like you interact with people and you can be honest in these ways that you're never going to see again because it's not ubiquitous, because it doesn't matter. And you're just a, you're just one person in a giant city and you have this moment of connection with them and then you move on. And it would make me really sad not to have that, even though, you know, the price is that people are complete assholes on the internet when they're anonymous. Yeah, I mean, that also just makes me think that this issue, and you had mentioned, Lee, the idea that in Europe that you have the right to be forgotten, but that in this flesh and blood world, you can forget these encounters. And these encounters are often very forgettable, and their fleetingness is what makes them 
enjoyable and that there's something about the the way in which we are not forgotten in whatever we do digitally that is worrisome. And I mean, I'm assuming that the procedure to get yourself forgotten is not easy. Yeah. So, so right. It's just sort of there. There's something about that that I think is you have to go to the diff- bureau of yeah. forgetting. It's yeah. yeah, and it costs you one toe for everything that you want forgotten. That's right, and it's in mini true. Yeah. But I was wondering if you guys, because you're both parents of teenagers, I wonder. In my experience, I do think that a lot of my students, when we talk about privacy, are very quick to say the horses are out of the barn. Right. Like, who cares? And I'm really, really interested in what it would be like to be in particular a Zoomer. So you've never not had your life recorded um, and recorded in a way, as Amon says, that's ubiquitous and permanent. And so this idea that you ever had any privacy, really, or even any secrecy, they, they just seem very like, okay, boomer about it, or okay, Gen X, I suppose. So I'm wondering, what do you think? Or what, like, I don't want you to speak for your teenagers, because they're teenagers. But since they're not here, speak for your teenagers. I mean, my experience has been actually both with the Zoomer generation, that there are those who are like, yeah, it's just always out there. I've been doing Pinterest and, you know, whatever Vine since I was born. And so these things are just just part of it. And it's not a big deal. But I have come in contact with a number of students. And I would say that so far, my kids seem to be in this camp, too, probably because they're my kids. And I'm such a freak about this stuff. But where they're like really anxious about putting themselves out there, and that they don't really want to like, actually be posting pictures of themselves and videos of themselves. And it has something to do, I think, with just like the, you know, reputational aspect of it. But I think that there are also sites of pushback against that because of its because of its to use Ammon's word, ubiquity. I don't want to speak for my kids either. But I I will say that like both my, my children and my children's friends, I think that they are much more savvy about this, right? They have an understanding of what privacy is in a way that probably took me a while to get to if I'm even there at all. My oldest daughter, who's 16, she I think she listens to this podcast some and we talk about it. And I'll say like, I, you know, I'll be talking about what we're going to be talking about next. And I'll be like, she'll bring up some great points now. And I'll be like, well, can I bring that up? And she's very comfortable generally with letting me do that. But I think that the key thing is that we've had to establish a relationship of trust And that relationship of trust is something that she wants to make sure is in place. In other words, it's not about being private or not being private. It's about ownership and power, which I think it's great. And I I think that my students, too, I think that they have an intelligence about this that I hope that really serves them well. Yeah, I suppose another thing that we haven't really mentioned, but I feel like we'd be remiss not to mention talking about privacy, is that it impacts people very differently, on the basis of class, race, gender, mm-hmm. sex and sexuality, et cetera. And that when we start looking at things like, for example, facial recognition technology, mm-hmm. which is really where surveillance creep is happening, that the actual effect, because the algorithms of facial recognition technology are largely not transparent, the actual effect on people's lives, we know already is dramatically different. That facial recognition technology was trained on white faces, that there's much, much more misrecognition that happens in facial recognition technology for non-white people, and that this has had devastating effects in some people's lives. And also because facial recognition technology is being used without our consent. So if you're getting on a plane, and this is only going to be more and more and more the case, And so I do think that this is something where I am a little bit more sympathetic to y'all's privacy yakking when it comes to facial recognition (laughs) technology, because I I don't think of my face as private. I mean, I think it's the most public thing about me, right? But I do think that it is a secret that I share with some and not with others. And I don't like that someone's coming in and having this secret relationship with me without my knowing about it. As Uncle Leonard Cohen says, I smile when I'm angry. 
I cheat and I lie. And now the problem with facial recognition software is the facial recognition software knows when I'm smiling, ah, when I'm angry. I was wondering where you, you were, were going, where I was with, going that. with it. It's I was all, like, it thank all you, Uncle Leonard. Well, that actually <laughs> is one of the ways in which the implicit biases of facial recognition technology has been demonstrated is that it promises to be able to, for example, read emotions. I mean, if you're entering the job market right now, there is a something like 65% chance that you will be interviewed by a program that uses facial recognition technology. And one of the things that it is claiming that it can do is, among other things, recognize people who are trustworthy, recognize certain kinds of emotions, no. recognize people who are friendly. Yeah, what? yeah. And, and these, I'm sure there's no biases. And there absolutely are racial <laughs> biases and gendered biases to exactly those sorts of things. So, you know. Well, and this also, you know, the interesting thing about facial recognition software is that it does collapse this meat space digital space distinction in a very real way because your your actual Um, meat space self just becomes encoded data right Right. and will be or will not be hired based on the performance and the algorithm yeah so smile when you're angry And on that bright note, (laughs) it looks like we are about to get last call at the hotel bar again. So before we all roll out and back to our regular lives, what are we going to talk about next time? We are going to talk about whodunits. We're going to talk about detective and and mystery stories. And I think Lee and I are going to try to persuade Shannon that there's something really philosophically interesting going on in our obsession with mysteries. Yes. And I, I wait to be convinced. <laughs> yes, and I'm going to have queued up the Law & Order the like, music for, for every time <laughs> we make transitions. I just like want it to be like a button that you just yes. keep pushing the whole time. I'm actually time. just going to do that for all future <laughs> podcast episodes. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. All right, you guys. Well, then, all right. All right. Out, yeah, I'll catch y'all next time. It'll be mysterious. Thank you.